Good morning and welcome to Chanel. We are glad that you're here with us. If you're joining us online, welcome as well. So I want to start off with a story because last week, uh, as I do every week, I was headed to Sam's Club to go to their sampler lunch. Uh, just show that gift card and then you're in and you can sample all their uh, lunchtime delicious treats for free with your membership. But when I was at Sam's Club, I stopped to get gas uh, because we're still enjoying the benefits of what I call the gas wars between Costco and Sam's Club, who will be lower. And so I'm at the gas station and I've got headphones in and I'm, I'm listening to music and I'm kind of zoned out a little bit and I feel someone touch my arm. Now I don't, I'm a hugger, I'm a fist pump guy, I like a good handshake, I've been working on mine, mine's getting stronger, but I don't like to be touched when I'm not ready. And I feel an arm touch me, and I'm like, oh, like, I, you know, shuddered a little bit, and it's this, you know, elderly lady, and she's like, how old are you? And I was like, you know, ma'am, I'm taken, you know, as I'm smoking for her. Um, but I, I said, I'm 36, why? And she goes, what do you know about Chrysler Pacifica vans? Now, at this point, I was both confused and delighted. Because this stranger, one, had no idea how old I was, but thought that just seeing this, that he might have some car knowledge within him. And I looked this old lady in the face, and I lied to her. I said, I know a thing or two. What can I help you with? Embarking on this journey that I should never have gone on. And she said, it's a really silly problem that we have, but my, my husband and I just bought this Chrysler Pacifica, and when we bought it and we drove off the lot, they gave us a, a full tank of gas. And she said, we've been driving it around, and then we've realized that we don't know how to open the gas tank. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, one, I'm like, this is a problem that I could probably solve. You know, like, I thought we were lifting the hood. Um, and so I, I walk to the gas, the gas door, and I, I, I touch it, and nothing, you know, nothing happens. And I said, well, let me, let me take a look inside. And so uh, this lady at this point probably realizes that she's found the wrong person. And so we, we look inside the driver's side, and there, there's nothing that indicates a gas door, right? I'm looking for a switch. I'm looking for a knob, anything. And then I say these famous words. I say, let me do a walk around, which is what I assume a mechanic or like a grown-up would say. And I said, let me, let me do a walk around. And I said, you stay right here. And so when I did my walk around, pulled out my cell phone and Googled, uh, how do you open the, uh, the gas tank door of a Chrysler Pacifica van? And guess what? I figured it out. And so I walked back around and said, hey, when we were touching the gas door, I, I thought I felt something last time. And so I, it told me to, to look at the bottom right of the gas door, push it in, and the door would pop out. And so I did. This lady's life was changed forever. She, you know, she saw a modern-day miracle at the Sam's Club. Um, and, and she said, thank you so much. I appreciate this. And I'm, I'm glowing with pride. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm the best. Like, you're welcome. Um, I'm going to go get these sample foods like a normal person uh, as my lunch. But I thought about that story a lot this week as I enter into this text of Esther this morning. Because how often are we so ready to say no to even small moments like that? We can easily just say, you know what, I can't help you right now. I'm too busy. I've got too much on my plate. Uh, even if we were honest, ma'am, I don't know a thing about minivans. But think about that for just a moment. How often we are ready to say no to moments especially those that God places right in front of us to help someone, to show kindness, to love or to give. So often we just say no before we even enter into those opportunities. The story that we're looking at this morning, the story of Esther, is a story that's kind of based around moments. 
The story itself is set up as a historical novella, which means that it could intentionally be a a fictional story based within a historical setting. I I tend to lean into this as a a true story with a lot of exaggerations, but I want to enter into this text this morning with that kind of in in the back of our minds, that we're we're being told a, a story that is intended to entertain. And the text begins in verse 4 that we're looking at this morning. For a full 180 days, King Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from least to the greatest who were in the city of Susa. Now we're kind of understanding where this story is taking place because these are people who have not returned back to Jerusalem after the exile. So thank Nehemiah, Ezra, they go back. This story is for those who did not go back. So the next line of the story is this. Go to the next slide for me. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, the Greek of this is drunk, uh, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. There's a lot of people that will emphasize that she was intended, she was told to come naked wearing only the royal crown. And that's kind of the emphasis on this, is that King Xerxes wants all of the people who are hanging out with him, all those individuals who are, are very intoxicated at this point, to look at his wife and be like, look at the splendor of this lady. Uh, when these day, and, and sorry, uh, To bring in Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and to the nobles. For she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Our first glimpse of feminism in Scripture here, of Queen Vashti saying, Absolutely not. You are out of your mind if you think that I'm going to come before you wearing only my royal crown. The king became furious and burned with anger. Now what happens next is the king and his yes-men kind of get around him and they're like, We cannot have these women folk thinking that they can stand up for themselves. And, and this story proceeds with that mind, where King Xerxes is like, Absol- you're absolutely right. We can't have this. And so in verse 15, it says that she has not obeyed the command. He says, we're going to do this law. We've got to do a law where all the women in the kingdom have to obey their husbands, regardless of what they say and what they do. Queen Vashti obviously has not done this, and so she is thrown out of the king's palace. We do not know if she is killed. We do not know if they're just like, just get out of here, leave. The text doesn't lend that to us. Again, when we read it kind of in this novella setting here, we're kind of just emphasizing the entertainment value of this, of the king who is the most powerful person in the kingdom has lost his power because his wife stood up to him and said, I'm not going to do this thing. And so what they often do, especially in this historical context, when something goes bad, these men say, let's find some young virgins. And so in verse 2 through 3, the king's personal attendants propose, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. And the king, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. So we've got this weird bachelor contest that's developing here too. Again, intended to entertain and build the story up. But you're seeing how the story is developed as King Xerxes is kind of losing his power but trying to regain it a little bit. And by doing this bachelorette search thing that we've got going on here, we're going to be introduced to the namesake of this text. And in verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. 
Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her mother and father died. Now Esther decides that she's going to enter into this, or Mordecai, it's really not clear who decides that she should do this, but essentially Mordecai and Esther decide that she is going to be a part of this. But she's not going to be a part of this to her true self. Because in verses 10 and 11, we learn that Esther did not reveal her nationality or family background. Every day, he, Mordecai, walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find, out, uh, to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, Mordecai is going to be back and forth in the temple courts. And because of this, Mordecai is often going to find himself in the right place at the right time. And these, these moments that we talked a little bit about when I, when I gave the example of Sam's Club keep coming up for Mordecai. Because Mordecai is, is just kind of, he's around. And he's listening. And he's watching. And he actually finds out that there are these two individuals within the king's court who want to assassinate King Xerxes. So Mordecai does what he does, and he tells people this. And he kind of is immediately put on the radar as somebody who is looking out for the king. So these events happen, the assassination plot is is squashed, it doesn't happen, and the text kind of moves on. We get this glimpse of who Mordecai is and what Mordecai is up to. The text proceeds into chapter 3 that after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay or honor him, bow down or honor him. This infuriates Haman. He can't stand it. He hates every ounce of who Mordecai is. Because another element of the story that is often overlooked beyond moments is power. King Xerxes begins the story losing a little bit of his power because his wife stands up to him. Here, another power struggle is developing between Haman and and Mordecai. Because Mordecai does not bow down to anyone other than God. And so when Haman instructs him to do this, and he doesn't, it just fills Haman with rage. We're not going to go all through chapter 3, but if you were to look in that text, you would see that Haman becomes obsessed with this. He can't let it go. He learns who Mordecai is, what people Mordecai has come from, and he has committed himself to eradicating all of the Jews in the land. And the first individual that he wants taken care of is Mordecai. And so again, we're, we're talking power here. We're talking about giving up just a little ounce of power because somebody didn't want to bow down to you. Haman becomes obsessed with it and decides that he's going to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And he in turn gets King Xerxes to go along with this. He seals it and says, yes, we can do this. Now one of the things that that Haman does is he casts a die. In your Bible, it's probably a, a pur, which is where we're going to get the Jewish holiday called Purim later on. But it's already laying the foundation for this. But when he casts a die, he's doing it to kind of just say, I'm in control, and I don't really care when this happens, how this happens, as long as it happens. That's Haman's intent here. And again, Mordecai's there. He's listening. He's watching. He's seeing everything that's going on in this scene. 
And one of the things that we, we gloss over just a little bit is that Esther is chosen to be queen. She is now in this royal place. She's hidden her identity. King Xerxes doesn't know that she's Jewish. The only individual in this story that knows is Mordecai. But Mordecai knows that something has to happen, that something has to be done, that we can't just simply let this this go on. And so Mordecai goes to the temple courts. In verse 7 of chapter 4, Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. Do you see the passion? Do you see the fear? Do you see the concern? He's giving Esther everything and saying, this is what's going to happen. This is our moment. This is when we stand up and recognize that we were created to do something more. And he told him to instruct her, so there's a messenger going back and forth. He told the messenger to instruct Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him to the king's people. Verse 10, then he instructed him to say to Mordecai. Then she, Esther returns with the message. It says, then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, Without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. I could have easily told that lady at the gas pump, and probably honestly, ma'am, I know nothing about Chrysler Pacificus. Can I call my dad? You know what I mean? Like that's, I could have easily found a laundry list of excuses. And that's exactly what Esther is doing here. She has the king's favor. Mordecai knows this. But Esther is still looking for those exit ramps to say, I'm not going to do this. It's not safe for me. There's too much risk. There's too much danger. There's not enough reward in it for me. And often when we ignore those moments that God has given us, that God has set before us, that's really what we're doing is we're evaluating a risk and saying, ah, it's not worth it. God is saying it is worth it. Every time that God puts someone or something in your life, God is doing it so that you can bless that person. Not so that you can be scared or intimidated or or just feel like you're not equipped. Because God has prepared, God has equipped you. And so Esther's words get back to Mordecai. Verses 12 through 14, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. This line is striking when you think about their relationship. Mordecai is the only family that Esther knows. Her mother, her father, they're dead. She's been an orphan. Mordecai is taking her into his house. He's like, you're, you're hiding behind something, but one day you'll be found out. You may not tell them who you are right now, but one day they will know. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
And who knows that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Do you feel it? Do you feel the intensity? Do you feel the seriousness of this moment? Of Mordecai emphasizing that God has placed you in this moment, Esther. Not so that you can wear pretty dresses. Not so that you can go to the royal dinners. Not so that you can do all the things that queens do. That he's placed you in this moment to make an impact. And so Esther says, I'll go. I'll do it. She understands the severity of the moment. So she requests to see the king. Now it's here that in a lot of the times that we look at the story of Esther in this lens of the vacation Bible school stories, we like to stop here. And maybe we even do like a Cliff Notes version of it where we just kind of are like, and then everybody lived happily ever after. When we do that, we skip about six chapters that are left in this book. Because the story doesn't end in Esther chapter 4. The story continues, and it doesn't get better until something weird happens. Because Haman is still there. Haman is still fuming. And we see how sadistic Haman actually is, because in chapter 5, his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits. We talked about cubits last week. Remember, it's the bottom of our elbow to the top of our middle finger. He says, have a um, pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Do you see why we skip this when we do tell the story to kids? It gets dark pretty fast. Next chapter, Judah's learning a thing or two. It was found, recorded that Mordecai, go back to this. Oh yeah, that right there, perfect. Um, have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Think about that for just a moment. How committed to this Haman was. That even the, the way that he's going to get rid of Haman is dark. But then something funny happens. Funny to me, perhaps not funny to you. The king can't sleep. He's got a lot going on in his mind. He's thinking about a lot of different things, how to, to, to keep watch over all the kingdom. And he, he can't sleep. And this is in the text. In chapter 6, that night the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. This is essentially what we do with the Kittinger children every night. Who wants, who wants to pick out a book? The kids go pick out a book, you read it to them, and they fall asleep. That is what is happening. The king can't sleep, so he orders one of his servants to go get basically the history of his kingdom, uh, not a narcissist at all. He says, read to me about me. And it was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bekthathia and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. One of the things that we leave out a lot in the story is how funny it is. And it's in, intended to have some humor behind it. It's easy to look at what Mordecai says to Esther, focus on that, zero in on that, and see and, and ignore some of the kind of the funnier elements of this. Because Mordecai is going to be saved because King Xerxes was read a nighttime story. I mean, that's nuts and bolts, that's what it is. 
Because at that point, King Xerxes had forgotten this. And he's reminded of who Mordecai is, what Mordecai has done, and then Mordecai is shown favor to him. In chapter 7, then Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, we've got this pole uh, reaching to a height of 50 cubit stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So think about the role reversals that are happening all throughout the story. There are power struggles. There are important struggles. And here, what happens is the very pole that Haman wanted to impale Mordecai on, Haman is going to be put on that pole. Ironically, in front of his house too. There's so many role reversal elements in this story that's intended to be a little bit humorous, albeit dark, but that's what's going on. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole. He had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Chapter 8, if it pleases the king, Esther said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Reversal. Remember, we had had an edict earlier destroying all the Jews. Now we're flipping it, and we're going to kill everyone that's associated with Haman. For how can I bear to see a disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And in verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. It's a fun Bible school story, right? We're getting impaling people, we're getting plundering villages, we're going to destroy anyone in their path. Now, this story, when read in kind of the Jewish context, if you're celebrating Purim, you're going to read the story of Esther. That is what that celebration, that is what that holiday is about. And yes, they read it with looking at, at what Esther does, about Esther conquering that moment, standing up for her people, who she was called to be. But more than that, how you would read this story to celebrate Purim is a reminder that God has not forgotten you. When they were putting the canon of Scripture together, when they were combining all the books and saying, this one fits in Scripture, this one fits in Scripture, this one doesn't, they fought over Esther. Because not once is the name of God mentioned in the story of Esther. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is the story celebrated today? If we have a book of ten chapters that doesn't mention the name of God once, it's because in, in the, the festival of Purim, what we celebrate is that God has not forgotten His people. That even though God's name is not mentioned within the text, God is still working. God is still active. God is still doing things even when you can't see God working. And that's why we have to talk about Dolly Parton. I've done a, uh, I did a sermon a while ago about Dolly Parton. I mentioned this before. Dolly Parton is one of my favorite individuals in country music. Uh, I think she's a fantastic human being that has done a lot of good things for a lot of people. But the story that, that I want to tell today is actually not just about Dolly Parton, but also about Whitney Houston. In 1992, Whitney Houston starred in a movie called The Bodyguard. Next picture, with Kevin Costner. In that movie, 
a song that Dolly Parton wrote years ago was a, a hit within that movie called I Will Always Love You. Now, in, in folk country lore, it's believed that Dolly Parton wrote the song Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the exact same day. Love, Dolly. Um, there's nothing new with this, the sermon. There's just fun facts about Dolly I like to tell you. Back to this movie here. In 1992, Dolly Parton gave the rights to I Will Always Love You to the movie, but also to Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, uh, I would say, made the song more popular, that was already popular, but, but Whitney Houston added more to it. There are some estimations that Dolly Parton made around $10 million with that particular song, with I Will Always Love You, with just the, the country version of it, the media rights to it, how it kind of helped the movie out, but around $10 million. And I was wondering this week, like, what I would do with all that money. But I can tell you what Dolly did with all that money. See, Dolly had a recording studio at the time on 16th Street in Nashville, which is often called Music Row. I think it's that first street picture we've got there. Uh, this is where you're going to see a lot of the restaurants, a lot of the, all the music cliche stuff in Nashville, about 16th Avenue, Music Row. What Dolly Parton did in 1992, after getting all of that money from I Will Always Love You, is she said, I, I want to invest that money into an underprivileged, underserved community. So she looked around Nashville, and she found 12th Avenue South. If you've ever been to Nashville, that's the area where Lipscomb, Belmont is, and kind of below it. But she said, I want to invest in 12th Avenue South. And when you read stories about this particular investment, uh, there are countless tales of realtors being like, this is a bad idea. No one should put money in this part of town. But Dolly decided she wanted to. She moved her studio from 16th Avenue all the way to 12th Avenue South and said, I'm going to start pouring into this community that's often overlooked. It's forgotten. Now, if you were to go to uh, 12th Avenue South today, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a hippie's dream. Uh, there's donut shops, there's coffee shops. It, it is a, a built-up neighborhood with a lot of different opportunities for people. That's not 12th Avenue South. That's still Broadway. Let's go. There's one more picture. One more. There we go. She took that money and invested it into an underserved community. If you go to 12th Avenue South today, there's neighborhoods, there's community things, there's shopping, there's real, like this, everything that you could imagine. And it started because one person decided to say, I'm not going to overlook that community. Now, I guarantee you, in the, the late 1990s, that if you were to go around and you were to ask people, hey, how is this community doing this? A lot of people would say, I have no idea. But somebody was working behind the scenes to give them an opportunity to grow, to have a better life, to have a stronger community. They didn't see Dolly doing it. Often when she gives and when she serves, it's done discreetly, under the radar. And when I found that story this week, I, just, I kept coming back to the same element of Ruth. We cannot often see God working in our lives and the lives of others. But the story of Esther celebrates that. That even though we may not be able to see what God is doing, God is still active and God is still at work. But we are reminders that we have to participate in that. Esther continues in chapter 9. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and every city. These days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of, the, of these days die out among their descendants. 
And the story ends with King Xerxes making uh, record, uh, there we go, in uh, verse 2, and all of his acts of power and might together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of the, uh, of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King per, uh, Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So yes, the story is absolutely about moments. It's about recognizing that God puts things in front of us because God wants us to serve, God wants us to give, God wants us to live. But it's also a reminder that God has not forgotten you. That if you feel like you are in a valley right now, that things are just keep, they keep getting worse, the story of Esther is a reminder that you are not forgotten. That even though you may not be able to see tangibly that God is working, God has promised to continue working in your life. And then when God puts moments in front of you, we are called to serve. Let's stand and sing.